Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons, a creative writing podcast where we talk about dragons with both determination and deliberation. I'm Peter. And I'm Izzy. And we're gonna talk about the eighth and second to last story in the Pana and Wave Skimmer cycle. So today we're gonna be talking about rising action and what that means but first we are going to talk about the rising action in a different story a story that some of you may know from a a little known book called harry potter and the sorcerer's stone basically we wanted to talk about this because there's a clear series of rising actions that leads up to the final confrontation with voldemort harry and his friends discover that the Sorcerer's Stone is at risk, it's going to be stolen at a specific night, and they go and try to stop who, you know, they think Snape is going to steal it. So they go and try to stop Snape from stealing it. And then they find out it's Voldemort and Quirrell. But in order to get to the stone, they first have to go through a series of events. So you'll all remember the three-headed dog that they need to face first, and then the plant, Devil Snare, that tries to, like, strangle them. And then there's like keys, they go through a chess match thing. They thankfully don't have to fight a second troll because Quirrell already took out the troll. And Hermione solves a logic puzzle with potions. But I think the idea here is all these events are kind of getting us to the final confrontation. Like we know that something crazy is going to happen and like Harry's going to you know, for us rereading it, like, we know Harry's going to fight Voldemort. It's going to be this big thing. He's going to learn a lot about himself, his, like, connection to Voldemort, his parents, what it means to be, a you know, an 11-year-old kid fighting <laughs> this pure evil. But, you know, it doesn't happen right away, and there's, like, things that he needs to do first. And, you know, I mean, you can analyze some of the the obstacles and maybe, like, come up with things that maybe Harry learned from those obstacles or, you know, ways in which he was tested in order to overcome those obstacles. But I think it's interesting that, like, in order to get to this final place, like, there's a thing he needs to do. So it it feels very, like, sequential, like, necessary, like, you need to do this in the right sequence. There's a spatial element to it, like, he needs to move through this, this space to get to the Sorcerer's Stone Room. So there's a lot to kind of think about with rising action. I don't know if Izzy, if you have any additional thoughts. Those were many good thoughts. I was thinking of a more of a literal sense of like step A, step B, step C before X marks the spot and we get to the big boss battle with Voldemort or whatever your climax is for your story. So I was thinking of it more of a literal, like, going up each step in the rising action, like a stair, like a stairway from, like, up and up and up to sort of ramp up readers' expectations and get them excited for whatever might be coming next in the story. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, within the context of the series, that's what's happening. Like, he's, you know, he's fighting Voldemort, but he's really fighting Quirrell. And then, like, Voldemort comes 
you know, much later. I also just think it's really funny that they're literally like moving down through space, like they're going deeper underground. But yeah, certainly, I think your point about it being sequential is is spot on. So before we get into our conversation about the story itself, I'm going to tell you what happens in the story. So this will be a quick summary. Basically, in the previous story, Pana figures out that, like, yes, they are going to go and help try to disarm, destroy, whatever, the weapons of mass destruction that are still in place. And in this story, they're going to find the weapon. So they're literally just hiking (laughs) and they try to go and find it. They reach a plateau. So MC is the map maker. And she believes that it's on the top of this plateau. She's like, oh, there's no other place a weapon would be. It doesn't make sense for it to be anywhere else based off of the um, based off of the landscape here. And then they find out like, no, it is not on the plateau. It is in a giant sinkhole. that's like two miles wide. So. That's where we end off. And we also have like a flashback scene with Vare. As the village is preparing to go after Pana, she like visits Pana's father. So it's it's sad <laughs> and it was rough to write. That that's basically it. But Vare doesn't actually appear in the chapter. I hadn't questioned it, but I do kind of wonder where she went. Yeah, she doesn't appear in like the, the current time. So I don't know, where could she be? (laughs) (laughs) Lurking in the shadows. Yeah, I think, I mean, most of the people were dropped off. So, aside from, like, essential sailing personnel, the boat is relatively empty at this point. But that doesn't mean that everyone got off the boat. So just in terms of rising action... I do think it's important to point out that this story wasn't ever inten- like intended to be its own separate short story. And in a way, I mean, all the other short stories I really tried to make, not necessarily self-contained stories, but there's like this element of kind of like in Avatar The Last Airbender where like there's a beginning, middle and end to each individual episode. And I really try to kind of stick to that for this. Like, I I didn't write this in chapters. I wrote it in, in short stories. And this one just isn't like that, I think. I mean, maybe it could be to a certain extent. But I think, like, if if it was, at least in written form, like, I would need to definitely add a lot more. I think, in my mind, this is, like, a cool, like, visual TV episode, sort of. So... My point is that it wasn't intended to be, like, this rising action, like, before, you know, its own kind of separate piece that, like, distinguishes itself from the previous one and, like, the final chapter. It's sort of just, the final chapter sort of just became, like, way too long, and I wanted to, like, cut out a chunk of it. So, it's, when we were talking about rising action with Harry Potter, like, it's very clear that you know these there's like this space between and like time between 
the final action in figuring out that the stone is going to be stolen. And I'm curious to hear more about, like, how you think this works as a rising action within the context of this story. Not knowing, of course, what happens next. <laughs> yeah. At this point, my expectation, as I have been told in the story, is that they're, now that they have found the weapon, step B is destroy the weapon after they figure out how to actually do that. So I'm presuming they're going to go about that in some kind of way and maybe things will go wrong in that process. But that's my expectation for Climax's big explosion kaboom of some kind. But I personally think this fits. I mean, obviously, it was meant to go come before the climax anyways. So it's not like sticking a flashback scene in here totally randomly. Although there is a small flashback scene. But I think it works as the part of the rising action. Because not all of the rising action is, you know, constant, like, going up a steep slope, sprinting. But this one is more of a plateau... And then we're heading for another sprint. Literally. So, yeah. And they literally scale up a plateau. Uh, scale up a cliff to a plateau. So yes, there that literally happens in the story. But I also think it for the pacing of the story, it makes sense. Because rising action, in my mind, is a little bit misleading. Because there does have to be a certain... Um, pacing to it that isn't just consistent ramping up with no break whatsoever i mean so it can be to a certain extent yeah depending on what story you're telling if you're writing like fast and furious just go for it um but i mean the previous chapter was more of a dragon battle what do we do everybody's in danger so this is a little bit more lower key in that sense, but also still pushing the whole plot forward because they're actively going on the search now that they've made a plan and decided to follow through on that plan and before they hadn't fully made a decision yet, or Pana hadn't made their decision until the end of that chapter previously. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely going after the thing now. And definitely, like, I don't know if it's necessarily that things have ramped up. It's, like, sort of getting there. So this is definitely, you know, it, it's not Harry, Hermione, and Ron facing down, like, crazy, dangerous, scary things. But it's certainly, like, they're getting to where they need to go, and they find... I mean, at the end, they do find the structure that they think at least is like housing the weapon or is the weapon we don't know yet and i mean it's crazy ginormous it's in a sinkhole that's like two miles wide and very deep so there's certainly like this ramping up kind of at the end and i think it's interesting too just like one of the fun things has been trying to kind of like balance and like put in all these like older technologies and things like all these things from a different world into this one so just like imagining them like seeing this metal structure and like none of them 
like they don't use metal that often. I think a lot of like the metal things that they do use. So like Vare has her. Does she have a knife or a sword? A knife I'm forgetting. Thing, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> she has a knife thing, but like. You know, that was probably, like, scavenged by someone at some point and isn't, you know, wasn't forged, like, relatively recently. So it's been fun, like, seeing this ramping up, not just of, like, stakes, but just the the connectivity, like, between the past and, like, the present in a way, too. I can see that in a, a storyline sense, but, um, because... Like, literally, they're destroying weapons that were created way back when in the past, pre-apocalypse. As for the metal structure that they find at the very end, I didn't know how to interpret it, because they literally find it in the chapter end, so I hadn't seen too many instances of them, like, the characters themselves interacting with the um, technology yet, but I do definitely feel the... Plot, the thread of the plotline is definitely pulling threads from the past a lot more heavily now than now that the characters are actually aware of what went on a little bit more, or mostly Pana, from the visions. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point it's not, so like we haven't seen them react to it, but like, I mean, just based off of how they've been reacting to like everything else, like I'm remembering Pana. I mean, you know, finding Naka, like, at first, and he's just, like, a single person with his kids, and Pana was like, whoa, this is, like, I didn't realize people could even survive outside of the village, and then they find, like, another village, and then they find, like, the whole port thing, so, I mean, we'll we'll see them react in the next story, of course, but I think it's, like, one of those parts where you, like, cut off a story, and you're, like, you have to kind of step in and just like imagine what they're thinking and there's definitely like this sense at least i hope of like well we've seen them react to all these other things like how how are they going to react to like a giant building like this that's made out of like a material that no one knows how to manipulate so i don't know i'm just i'm excited to like really start to have all these like crazy things that that don't make sense in the worldview of the characters and they have to kind of like come in and just deal with it and like learn how to deal with it mm -hmm. i think it will be very interesting to see i have not read the next chapter yet so i will see very soon but as for rising action, I think it does make sense chronologically, but also the way the story plays out at this point, I feel like as a reader, I finally have enough information to understand the stakes a little bit more. So even though the danger like in the dragon battle was much more immediate and it felt very, you know, tense, this chapter, they're not directly in danger, really, except for maybe a sinkhole or two falling into it. But it definitely, for me, has much more of a undercurrent of tension because we know this is something that could literally destroy the world or people tried to use the weapon to destroy the world before. And it's made clear that they don't even know how they might destroy it and that 
they could be putting their own lives at risk by doing this. So it definitely feels more like, I guess, the choice to risk their own lives is more apparent here than it was necessarily in the previous chapter where they were kind of thrown into danger because the dragon just showed up. Whereas this, as a reader, I'm going like, okay, they're still walking straight towards the danger. I don't know why. I mean, I know why, but like... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're more apparent because, like, they have t plenty of time to turn around and give up. So I guess it's kind of building tension in a way by making the reader wait for the thing to actually happen. I mean, and I think the waiting is key. Like, as, as you've been talking, I've been thinking of two cases where there's, like, waiting and there's, like, movement. So my first example is also in Harry Potter. In The Half-Blood Prince, like, before Dumbledore dies... You know, it's not just like, oh, something happened and then like something else happened. You have like the cave scene. So like they go, they find the fake Horcrux and then like they literally have to Explain go. Explain this more. Is this Harry and Dumbledore find the fake Horcrux in the lake with the dead thing, people yes. thing? The okay. dead scary things that I never keep my eyes open during the movie for. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, so they, they go and they do that. So, like, they do an important thing. And then they apparate back to Hogsmeade because you can't go to Hogwarts directly. And then you find out that the Dark Mark is, like, above Hogwarts. There's, like, a local a local barkeeper, Madame Rose Murda, who's like, oh, it's horrible. Like, we don't know what's happening. And then she gives Harry and Dumbledore broomsticks and they literally have to fly to get there. And there's, like, something about the language in that scene like it's a it's a short scene they just like fly but like it's there's description like harry's looking at dumbledore and in hindsight maybe it was a shock when you first read it like oh dumbledore dies like soon after but in hindsight like when you're looking at that scene you can really tell like oh like dumbledore is dying and like this is a this is a scene where he's literally moving into his death in a way both like physically and just like mentally like he's he's getting to this place where where his character is about to die so like there's that i'm also thinking of a star wars episode in star wars rebels which i mean izzy you haven't seen but i remember watching season so this is season four of rebels so like spoilers if you don't want to know what happens but one of the main characters kanan there's literally an episode called jedi knight n-i-g-h-t so like knight like you know the time of day before the episode even came out people were like oh he's gonna die in this and then the episode like made it super clear like oh he cuts his hair he has like really touching scenes where he like i don't remember if he like hugs the other characters or he just like tells them they're all great but there's like specific scenes in there where you're like okay this guy is dying and like this episode is like specifically the episode where like we're going to spend time and like move him to this place where he's getting to the point where he needs to die in the story. I'm not sure if that's necessarily in my story, but I think like Izzy, your point about there being this tension is what I'm kind of trying to get at. And I mean, those stories do it like way better than I do, of course. But I think there is a real fear of like, oh, we've, we've de-escalated things for now. We're taking time, like we're taking a step back. We're like hiking, we're looking for this thing that kind of reads, at least I hope it reads, and I'm trying to 
make it read like there is a real threat coming up. So like you're not just feeling that the stakes are high like in the middle of a fight with a dragon or whatever, but that there's these moments of like calm and relative peace where you start to get a sense of like, oh, like things are okay now, but we're moving into this place where things could go terribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that very much sums up what kind of happens in the chapter. How, I mean, I was thinking of it as a reader being like, okay, step one was the easy step, which was find the thing. Step two is the dangerous step, where they have to maybe destroy, maybe kill themselves (laughs) by destroying the weapon. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely part of that, like a step process, like, oh, you need to do this thing, and then you need to do this thing. Now I'm kind of just, like, really thinking about the movement aspect of it. And the fact that you, like, in order to get to the climax, like, you need to go through the rising action. So, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of it, like, as a pathway, sort of, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Even back to the Sorcerer's Stone, like, our main text that we were talking about before... I mean, there is, like, they literally have a scene of Harry in the game, like, walking to get to the obstacles in the first place. And then, you yes, you do have, like, the obstacles, and you have, like, oh, A, B, C, D, like, whatever. But they're also moving, so, like, it, it also at the same time serves as that kind of path. So, like, you're celebrating with them, and you're like, oh, like, they just did this, woohoo. You get to the next obstacle, you're like, oh, like, they just solved that too. But there's still this undercurrent of, like, okay, so they succeeded, things are going okay. And then you get to, like, the troll, and the troll is already knocked out, and you're like, and they're literally just, like, walking by it. And you're like, okay, this kind of, like, relatively peaceful moment, like, will it last? I don't know. And there's this fear of, like, what happens when they get to the end of the tunnel like what is harry gonna find there and is it going to be like something he can overcome the rising action is both like a sequence of things in a way it can be obviously you can break these rules too i'm sure but it's also a pathway and i mean it could be like i'm focusing more on like this aspect of like calm and like removal that serves as this like tension point but like you can totally make it much more like action packed probably and like you know in your face so there there's ways of going about doing it like however you want really mhm yeah i'm thinking i mean my i guess my definition for of rising action is a little bit looser where it it kind of to me implies a mixture of pacing between we're going very fast right now and things are exciting and then there is a little you know calm among the storm and then things go back to being bad to kind of further draw readers in the way that I'm used to reading a book and being drawn in not I do not have a specific example to cite but reading a book and there's a problem and then problem gets solved but then you know as that there's going to be something else that happens because i do think sometimes as it can be wearing for the problem to just be unless you're in a book series and you're close to the end of the book series and 
you're really close to the big finale to have an onslaught of non-stop things are bad and like tension just keeps rising and there's no pauses in between I think depends on the circumstances of what story you're telling but I like the mix and match or for the pacing and I think also generally it's just more common to find in narratives but also I do love you know the non-chronological narratives are really interesting to see too because then you have to figure out which piece of this is the rising action versus which which piece of this already happened. I'm thinking about like the first season of The Witcher where they tell the um, story non-chronologically on purpose just in the TV show because I have not read the books but the books are all chronologically told so this was a choice that they just specifically made for the Netflix show. But I think that non-chronologicalness does add tension in itself because you know this person has already died, but they're alive in this scene because it's earlier, and so having foreknowledge kind of of what will happen can also create tension if you wanted to break from telling something chronologically. Yeah, I mean, there's ways to do whatever you want with the rising action to make it like as interesting as you want. So obviously, like do do what's best for your story. Don't just like take our word for like what what we're looking for in a rising action. I thought it would be fun though, potentially. Mm-hmm. If since we're talking about rising action, are there any things that are like set up right now that have like led you to expect anything coming up? Do you have any like theories of things that might happen? I'm curious, more, not not based off of things I've told you, but if there's anything, like, in the text, I'm really curious to see where you think the story is potentially going from here. Beyond, like, the obvious, oh, like, they find the weapon and they're going to try to do something about it. Okay, it's hard because I have information that you told me that I can't bring into a theory it's not in the text. I don't think you have too much information. Well, I know you have, like, the Catra scene, but I don't know how much, like, I told you about the context of that. I, I don't know pretty much anything about that context, but from the chapter itself, logically speaking, as a reader, I have to be suspicious that Vare has actually left the boat with everyone else, even though we don't get any kind of blatant hints that Vare is still on the boat somewhere, but it seems too convenient for her to have just given up and left. So probably she's following them, and I'm not sure how she would be able to make it to the weapon because they find the weapon with Wave Skimmer flying them to it, and she cannot fly. But I'm sure she'll find a way to it, and they'll maybe get into a fight, or maybe just have some sort of tense conversation, but at this point I'm tempted to say that Vare is in a less, you know, kill-on-sight mood after Pana saved everyone from the dragon with Wave Skimmer, but I also feel like maybe the dragon incident could have shaken her up so she 
would would not be in the best mental state potentially as well did the flashback scene like impact what you think might happen and i'd also just want to point out um because like yes as we've said like Vare is not in this in like the present moment and i think for me like because i wanted to include Vare in this obviously it was less interesting to be like she got off the boat and she's like following them so i thought it would be more interesting to go back to like the first day where everyone's getting ready to kind of like follow Pana out of the village so it kind of serves like the same the same idea sort of like oh in both cases like Vari's leaving and like going after Pana but I wanted like a little bit more backstory about like what happened that day and we get to see Pana's father again which is always good so yeah I, I'm just curious like how did that impact like what you know or think about Vare and like where she is and like what's gonna happen? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just made me think she's definitely still gonna be doing what she can to keep on Pana's trail and keep following them. But I mean, she was talking to Pana's father, so she wouldn't, you know, she doesn't seem like the kind of character who would say terrible things to Pana's, face, Pana's father's face. So maybe she was thinking things that I don't know of, but she seemed much more sympathetic and understanding, and less of the extreme version that we've seen of her before, being like, dead or alive, bring Pana back. So she wasn't quite in that mindset, at, at least when she was leaving the village. Maybe it's because I'm an optimist, but I was like, maybe this is a sign that she's coming back to that original mindset when she originally left the village of, like, just trying to, you know, get Pana back. But she herself wasn't carrying one of the sharpened icicles, I don't think. So she hadn't, like, the intention to harm Pana at the point when she was leaving the village. So the optimistic part of me wants to say she's going back full circle to, you know, wanting to carry out some sort of accountability process or closure of some kind for the harm that Pana indirectly caused through all the dragon murders. But I'm also not sure. I, I know my optimistic side is very unrealistic and she probably hasn't gone back to that as a character or as real people, they don't usually do that. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But, um, she wasn't really that present in the chapter previously, other than a brief scene or two. So it's hard to say what mind state she's in. Yeah, she's been kind of absent since, like, story five, for the most part. Yeah, so the best I can theorize, I'm not very good at theorizing things, but the best I can theorize is that she is definitely still following Pana. They're going to have a confrontation. And it may or may not involve violence. Pana's still probably going to do the let's just talk about it move. And then Vare will, depending on what state of mind she's in, which I'm not sure of, will either be like, maybe I can talk. Or, heck no, now's not the time. Talk, the time for talk is gone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that I got it to a point where, like, it can go either way. 
I think that's very exciting. Well, it could just be that I'm too much of an optimist. Maybe she does seem more vengeful than I'm hoping she is. I don't know. I mean, and you also know, because I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before too, like, I also try to be more optimistic with my stories and like, I absolutely prefer stories with happy endings. And I'm thinking back to um, one of, so the director of the Star Wars Rebels TV show, just to go back to that, in the finale, like, almost no one died. I think there was like one clone who died. And the director was like, all the fans were upset. And the director is like, you guys like want these people to die? Like, I thought you were rooting for them. He's like, I like happy stories where the heroes win. And I kind of just relate to that a lot. So like, yes, this story is is dark in many respects. I definitely am more of an optimistic writer. I want to see more happy endings. Ideally, I don't know how well I achieve that, but yeah, I don't know. So I, I don't know if it's if it's you being optimistic or if it's me writing in a more optimistic way. But I think it's it's great that we can at least like question that and like you're not sure if it's like if you're just too optimistic or not. Yeah. No, I, I think I'm happy with, with that response and the potential for there to be some mystery as to what's going to happen. Okay, I'm glad I'm not reading too deeply into things, just because I want the goodness in all characters to eventually come out. I hold out hope for characters so much. I mean, it's fun to do, like, you know, I mean, Zuko, like, it's so much fun to, like, go back and, like, root for him and be like, you can be good now. And then he, like, shoots a fireball at Aang, and you're like, oh, no, I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah no there's actually now that I as soon as I said I was like there's certain characters that I never never root for as soon as they show that they're douchebags I'm like never mind you might as well be dead to me but there are <laughs> other characters that are more you know I see their potential like mm -hmm. Palpatine is never one that I, I rooted for his inner goodness to win out like he was not written to have inner goodness that could ever win out. No, he's, like Anakin, he's pure evil in comedy. <laughs> Anakin is like a character. I know I, I have a soft spot for the prequels because they were the ones I saw at a slate. I saw the original series younger and then I saw the prequel series still young but like slightly less young so I remember them better. So I did root for Anakin to like not become evil. I was also young enough to not realize how bad like murdering an entire villages in the second movie so sometimes yeah. the implications of all of his actions didn't fully hit when i was a kid but i mean also it's not you know our world so like i mean there's a whole conversation about darth vader and like his redemption like oh is he really a good guy now or are we just going to ignore like alderaan and everything else and it's like well it's star wars it's not real so like yeah you can like forgive him i guess in this one like fantasy case but even even with darth vader like you know he's done horrible things and you're like oh, i'm rooting for you to come back like rejoin the light like the you know the climax at the end of return of the jedi it's not like you know we're not rooting for luke to kill darth vader we're rooting for him to to bring his father back to the light side so 
there's definitely something to be said about like wanting characters and connecting with this idea of like wanting characters to come back to the light and like be be good <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah definitely i mean just have another shira example katra definitely ha- always has that feeling for me where i root for her so hard and she proves me wrong so many times but eventually eventually she gets there she she was rough to watch <laughs> mm-hmm and she also does like some some terrible things. Like I feel like <laughs> almost none of these characters in the real world like we just be like okay like come back now like everything's good. Except for no, maybe Zuko is... cuz he really doesn't do anything that like he fights a lot but he doesn't kill like anyone that we know of on screen. Oh true. I mean, he's been searching for Aang for, like, two years before Aang actually shows up. Who knows what happened in those two years? I don't know. I think he played a lot of Pai Show. <laughs> <laughs> but that's... Okay, we're we're getting into a tangent, though. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I, that makes me think of another thing. For rising action, it can. it's not just, you know, the literal events that are happening, but also, of course how you have developed your characters so that sometimes their char- their character's journey, like inner journey or emotional journey or however you want to phrase it, becomes a lot like just as important or maybe even more important depending on what kind of story you're writing than the plot narrative. Depending on how character-driven you want your story to be or not be. Like, sometimes it can be really integral to the plot for Shira, Katra's coming to the light part was integral to the final season working out. And the plot would not have functioned if she her character hadn't been written to be at the point where she could finally turn a new leaf over and actually become another a better version of herself, finally. So I would say for your story I don't know enough about Varida. She's probably not at the New Leaf phase yet. She definitely is not. But there is still the emotional tension because I don't feel convinced she's in the murderous rage that she used to be in earlier, in earlier chapters. So I think the rising action also is, you know, not just the building up of tension, but the building up of, you know, more uncertainty. No, I think that's a really good point, especially just your your conversation about like emotional character development too. Yeah, I mean, and we'll we'll see what happens. I think there's definitely an element of this of like these two characters, and it, it's not just the plot of them like getting to this place. It's this their state of mind at this point too, and like how how this hike impacts their no the hike doesn't impact their state of mind that much but um you know it what what their nature <laughs> it could oh the the serenity of nature they're all coming down now um but basically where they're at like on this hike so it's not just them like moving through a forest getting to this place it, it's their literal like movement as character not literal movement figurative mo- movement as characters <laughs> Um, you know, getting from where they were, Vare potentially being more of a, you know, violent, seeking justice kind of person, to wherever she's going to end up 
when she gets to the end of this nice woodsy forest path and Pana, you know, moving from this this place of like them being super just not confident with themselves to kind of figuring out what they're doing and like what their purpose is. That's it. <laughs> Thinking of another example of rising action that led into a climax that was disappointing. Um, I just didn't think the rising action was developed really well, in my opinion, but then the climax that it led to, for me, did not make sense for the character's development up to that point, because the character... It was explained that she was sort of possessed, and that her actions were not her own. But I was still like, no, this character just wouldn't do this. Not this easily, at least. What story is this? I don't remember the author, but its name is Malice. It's fantasy. Oh, it is Heather Walter Malice. Basically a retelling of, like, the Sleeping Beauty story, loosely, with the royal family has a sleeping curse. Mm. Yeah, so that... Or no, no, no. It's not a sleeping curse. It's worse than that. It's a death curse. <laughs> if the um, female members of the royal family don't find and kiss like their true love before they turn 21, they'll drop dead. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. But um, the main character is Alice, and Malice is the name because everybody hates her for fantasy racism reasons. She's like half human mm. and half not human. Ah. Uh. And they're like, how terrible, you're from the evil people who like we tried to kill off and, you know, the big fantasy war, they were the evil ones in the war. But at the end of the book, she like is really, she and the princess are like best buds to lovers and then at the end of the book, it looks like things are not going to work out. And that, oh, and there is the Sleeping Beauty. It is, um, the Alice has magic and is able to change the curse from being a death curse to being a sleeping curse and puts the princess to sleep so she doesn't die. Mm. But, um, no, I'm telling that wrong. She put, she saved, the princess wasn't going to die anyway because they had true love's kiss and she was like, the curse is broken. But then because of other dumb reasons, she had to put the princess to sleep instead. And then things just kind of went haywire. But up to that point, there was a, a good amount of tension rising and, you know, sort of a mixture of finding stability in relationships and them, the princess and Alice being like, wow, oh, the princess's name is Aurora, of course, because like Aurora, Sleeping Beauty. But a mixture of, you know, them finally, like, getting together and, like, finding stability versus Alice is betrayed by another character. Massive spoilers for anybody reading this. Or who might read this. So, Alice is betrayed by another character and it's like, oh no, what happened here? Why? But then the betrayal ends up going in a completely different direction from what I thought it was going to go in. And Alice ends up being sort of possessed. And... 
I feel like that's where it went haywire is when she started acting from being possessed by this ancient evil being. I just, it kind of threw me. It was a little jarring. Up until that point, the rising action had been going very smoothly, and then that was like the point, the switch over into the climax, I suppose, where she just kind of went and destroyed everything and was like, screw this, uh, society is messed up and I'm going to destroy it. And it's like valid, but also it didn't seem like it was fitting with the lines of character development up until that point, at least as far as I was reading it. I mean, I guess that's the concern about getting to that climax of the story. So, like, the rising action doesn't just, like, build up to something, but, like, in order for it to be satisfying, like, there needs to be some, you know, the the climax needs to ensure that the rising action is satisfying in some way. So, like, everything, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same story. So, it all kind of needs to fit together, however however that might be. And they all impact, like, each part of the story impacts your understanding and enjoyment of, like, the rest of the story. Yes, exactly so. I'm just thinking, I have still probably will not see Game of Thrones, but, you know, whatever they did with the finale was not it. I mean, that's, like, I can talk more about Star Wars because, like, I haven't seen Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And so we just recorded an episode with, um, with Andy. Well, I did. And we were talking about our enjoyment of specifically The Force Awakens, so episode seven. And like, I kind of have grown to enjoy it more over time. Whereas like, I initially disliked it. And then like, The Last Jedi made me really enjoy it a lot more. Whereas Andy... Episode seven? Yeah. Is um, the first in the new trilogy, so the... What's it called? The Force Awakens. Did you already say that? Yes. Oh. I'll probably cut that out. out. (laughs) So whereas Andy originally really liked The Force Awakens and then he got to the point where he saw The Rise of Skywalker and the way that impacted and built on slash didn't really build on some of the storylines in Force Awakens has subsequently like made made it a little bit less enjoyable for him. So definitely like there's this way in which parts of a story even if it's within like the same story itself like how you were talking about it it can impact your enjoyment of like the entirety of the book it's like you might be reading something and like you're really enjoying it and then you get to a point and you're like well now everything like kind of stinks and it colors like how you view the rest of the story as well so that's definitely (laughs) we'll see what happens with with my finale coming up but hopefully everything seems to kind of make sense and and be okay. We'll see. Well, I look forward to reading it, and I'll let you know my thoughts. And readers, you'll also, of course, hear those thoughts in our next episode. Gonna be fun. You have like 35 pages to read. It's the longest story I've written. Oh no. Okay. Just so you know, you can prepare for that. I'll block off time. I'm a very slow reader. It had to be, it's a finale, so it's long. The rising action is is short. (laughs) So, I don't know if that's actually, like, a thing that happens, like, all the time. That's just what it feels like in a lot of cases, though. Depending on the story you're trying to tell, different 
amounts of rising action work. I feel like The Shining is almost entirely rising action. And for me, it's too much. It's maddening. And I'm like, I can cut out all of this. None of this tricycling around the hotel is important to me. Too much rising mm. action. But it's a balance that is different for every story. Indeed. So now we're going to move on and talk about a favorite line that stood out to us and just a little bit about why and you know what, what we thought was interesting about it. Izzy, do you have a favorite line? Yes. I just chose this because I wanted to show off that I know how to read a contour map. Um, <laughs> it's just a description of a character looking at the map and I was like, I know exactly what they're talking about. Um, but the lines are, MC pointed at one of the few locations that was free of markings. A few rings surrounded it, but not much else. There. It isn't very large, but that is a plateau. The rings show different elevations, see? It rises really steeply, and then it stops. The top is super flat. So I just appreciated that I knew exactly how they were describing cliffs, even though the map doesn't say cliffs or anything, but for a contour map, the closer together the circle, the rings that are on a map, the steeper the elevation is, because each ring marks an elevation change. So more rings is very quick change. Indeed. Well, well done. <laughs> like a true cartographer. Yeah, I don't know if I like, it definitely probably could have been described better. And like, I might go back and like, make some edits just to the language there. It's, it's fun putting in some, you know, the maps. Maps are good. <laughs> no, I think it's very interesting. I could, we could have a whole separate conversation of the role of maps in this book. We could. So my favorite line, or not, I mean, favorite, but just the line that stood out to me. So we're in the flashback scene with Vare, and she goes to Pana's house, and like the house is like, they're all made out of ice, so it's like kind of difficult to get like straight edges on any of the buildings, but Pana's house is like really just like curvy and like weird and there was this one line that I really liked even the chimney ended five feet to the left of where it began so it's just a wacky chimney and I like this idea like not that the chimney like has any idea of the, the growth and progression of the characters in the story but this idea of like something starting and then like you don't know where it's going to end up and like things happen in the construction of said chimneys and you know people like Vare is we don't know where she's going to end up something might happen she you know started down this path with a specific goal in mind and we'll see if she accomplishes said goal or decides upon something else and, like, Pana started off in a different place, too, and, you know, they've grown a lot over the course of this story. So, it was just fun. I, you know, happy moment where chimneys reflect <laughs> characters and, and plot progression. 
Yeah, no, I forgot about that description of the house, but I like very much the idea of a curvy chimney. Um, I like quirky little houses like that. It sounds very nice. Although a house made of ice doesn't sound like the most comfortable to live in per se, but very interesting. Oh, I love a good igloo. They're fun. <laughs> so Izzy, do you have any last minute final thoughts? Not last minute. Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I guess I'm thinking rising action after all of our conversation. It mean it means literally for me events are ha taking place that are not just you know, exposition, telling you what the story is, what is happening, or sending their character off on the journey, but these are everything, all the information has been laid out, so these are events that are specifically built into the story to amp up and bring whatever the action is or whatever the character's inner journey is to the next level to prepare them for the climax. So I'm thinking of it more of a this is the point in the story where you should be thinking is what I'm writing reflective of my character's inner journey, if that's something your story wants to focus on, or does my character's inner journey line up with how the action is ramping up, depending on how much you want to relate those two, and is the action ramping up and have I set up my readers with enough information so that they will feel tension is occurring or so that they'll feel invested in form so that they can be invested in what is happening. Even if you do the non-chronological mix-up where you know somebody is dead or you know the thing exploded already but now the characters actually care or no, now the characters actually have gone through more of their journey non-chronologically and readers or viewers understand what is what the what the actual stakes are for what is happening so i guess taking a check to say have i you know met the benchmarks to set this up so a reader could who is not me who knows my story but so a reader could understand and feel this makes sense i understand why they feel upset or i understand why the story is making sense of course comprehensibility is kind of step one of i did this well the writing is the writing makes sense, but also I like I think the idea of pacing it, which varies drastically depending on what kind of story you're telling and your medium and whatnot. But I think don't be afraid to take a pause or don't be afraid to give your characters a little contemplative moment and you know leave your reader or your viewer kind of stewing a little bit. I think it can be good sometimes. Yeah. That's a really good point. I also think the thing that I'm coming away with is like, you know, it's also important, like what, what don't you write in your rising action too? So what are you allowing or like hoping that your reader is going to kind of interpret and read into the story? Kind of in the same way where like, you know, Dumbledore flying on the broom and, like, everything that happens with the Jedi and Star Wars Rebels, like, it's not stated, like, oh, these people are gonna die. But those scenes to me, like, feel very much as if that's what we should be expecting as readers. 
And there's a certain element of like, I'm not, you know, I didn't write in here, like, oh, we're, we're all like going to be facing this crazy thing. And like, you know, we all might die like very shortly, the characters, but I'm hoping that there's, you know, this tension that we were talking about and that readers can kind of like imagine for themselves, like, oh, this is a really stressful, like potentially dangerous situation that they're about to be in. A lot of this is like what you put into it and how clear you make it. But I'm also just curious about the ways in which we write about things while not necessarily like addressing them. So how do we craft a scene in which the thing that's happening or the thing that's going to happen is like clearly present in it, but isn't addressed like explicitly. I don't know. And like, maybe that's not, you know, my interpretation of those scenes that I'm talking about can be very different from like other people's. So again, just like trying to imagine what the reader is bringing into it, I think is a really interesting thought process. Yeah, definitely. I would say re keeping it, trying to your best to keep in mind reader expectations and reader assumptions as best you can is really crucial for the rising action and for the climax part of the story. But with that being said, I think we're going to sign off now. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. If you enjoy what you are listening to, feel free to check us out on our Patreon. The link will be in the description down below. And that's about it. Thank you all for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day, afternoon, night, time period of your, your choice. Have a wonderful 19th century, everyone. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the 19th century was surely pretty horrible in different, many different ways, but you know. And isn't able to be enjoyed now, but enjoy it anyway. <laughs> read, a, read a nice period piece. <laughs>